If you could turn with me um, to this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to be going through chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now, um, there's, there's a difficulty with the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, and this difficulty is that it is actually rather long. Um, when I was discussing with the youth what our uh, topic for discussion over the next year would be, they asked if we would be finished before the seniors graduated. They were not kidding, and I said, yes, we will, Lord willing, be done within 29 weeks. Um, and uh, that's not going to be the case for uh, the book of Ephesians we're going through. That will be done within 29 years. But until then, we are seeking to walk through Ecclesiastes. Now, that being said, uh, when I come to a text in Ecclesiastes, um, there is so much to communicate, and oh, such precious little time to do so. And so, I am going to seek to try and open up to you the book itself. I'm going to seek to give to you the equipment you would need to approach this book in a wise and understanding way and open up from the text itself what it is that this book of wisdom from the Old Testament has to offer us 3,000 years later after it was written down. So, if you could read along with me in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. Now, for those of you who have never studied this book, it might seem a bit dark, and let me tell you, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, it goes on for uh, 12 more chapters in a very similar vein. But the interesting thing is that when you truly study the book, just like the book of Job, uh, there are things, wealth and treasures within it, that um, by just... Uh, reading at a, a passing and fleeting pace, you, you might miss some interesting and beautiful realities. And so the book of Ecclesiastes um, is a very interesting, incredible, and poetic book. It was written by Solomon. We know this because he's claimed himself the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, of which there are very few true kings who ruled in Jerusalem. Now, this was a common accepted reality that it was Solomon who penned Ecclesiastes until the last couple centuries. But ultimately, all the debate lays aside, we are to understand this book as being either by, written by the hand of Solomon himself or one who's intending for us to read it through the voice of Solomon. That being said, there's going to be some interesting things that Solomon and his position and his perspective that he is going to seek to offer to us as you read the entire book. And this first three verses is the main crux of that which will continue the rest of the book. But, like I said, it's a very poetic book. And in fact, it was actually written initially as a sermon. And it's a sermon given to the people of Israel, the people of God, in the Old Testament. 
And it is such a book that it's written to be read, students, not once, but twice. They mouthed it. Yes, we're getting somewhere. It's meant to be read, not once, but twice. And the reason is, is because at the very, very end, in the final two verses, Solomon will give us a key interpretation tool. A key by which that when we take this lens at the very end of the book and we hold it then throughout the rest of the book, we begin to understand what he is truly getting at. And you might be frustrated by this. I didn't write it. So instead, I would encourage you, study this book, but read it twice. Let's dive in to the text itself. I want to give you first two points that I am going to seek to convey to you through this text. Now I say this because what I'm doing today is taking the summation of an entire wisdom book and seeking to put it before you. Within this text, the author has a purpose. And I'm going to seek to just give you a taste of that purpose. It would be as if I'm trying to summarize the life of an 80-year-old man, which is in fact what I'm going to be doing. There is so much to learn and so much to draw from this beautiful book that it can't be summarized into two points, but this is about all that we can handle for the moment. And so, I believe they'll be on the screen, the two points that we're going to get from this text today, because I believe in giving you the lens first, because I don't want you to have to watch my sermon twice. Point number one. The reality that Solomon is trying to convey to us, if there is no God, or I do not live my life utterly revolving around Him, I will never truly find the rest and contentment that my soul is built to long for. If there is no God, or I do not live my life in accordance to Him, my soul will will ever be at unrest. In essence, life without God is at best a mirage. It promises life, joy, and satisfaction. But it can only ever produce emptiness and dust. Point number two that we're going to see from this text. There is a God. There is a God, and I have a guaranteed relationship with Him. Thus, all of life is saturated with meaning. I have a guaranteed relationship with Him. Thus, all of life is saturated with meaning. It's amazing how I don't communicate with the people who are praying up here and leading worship, and yet they're following right along with exactly where this text is going. Did you know you are intrinsically built with a relationship to God? Intrinsically, it is something that you cannot escape. Your very essence and being is bound to this God. And what Solomon is going to seek to do is allow the people of Israel, the people of God, those that he has gathered before him, to see you stand before the eyes of the Almighty. 
whether you are yoked to him or death. We are intrinsically in a relationship with God. Either I will live in fear of him or I will have no fear of the Lord. Either way, I am intrinsically in relation before God. And one day he will gather all people and he will judge all of me and my life. These are the two points that Solomon is going to kick off his very happy and chipper book. Now, this book, if any of you have studied it, seems to be quite a downer. But when understood correctly, it's actually one of the most beautiful books in the Bible. Because we see that what actually brings great sorrow when looked up from a certain angle brings nothing but light and joy and uh, hope for a future beyond this world. And so, let's turn to the text as we seek to approach it together. The words of the preacher. This word for preacher is koheleth. And it simply means to assemble or to gather together. It's often used of professors in its context. It's often used of preachers. And so we have interpreted it as one who is gathering the people of God. He gathers them together in a scenario quite like this. This indeed is speaking of Solomon himself. He is, towards the end of his life, he is gathering the people of God together as something a mighty king might in fact do towards the end. To give his final addresses and proclamation to his people that he's been in charge of stewarding. And this Solomon stands up to teach and proclaim that which he believes is necessary for them to get to move on without him. As he looks at a life in his past, as the years to come are far few to the years that have gone, he steps up and he writes this sermon, which some have equated to the sermon his father wrote, Psalm 51. It is a sermon of utter repentance. You see, this is a king, Solomon, who has been charged with the people of God. And if you know anything about Solomon, you think, he's not that great of a fella. For we've heard of his life, have we not? He's a young buck when he takes over, only about 40. And he sees rightly when he's about to take over the kingdom. He sees rightly that he is going to be charged with the Elect people of Jerusalem, the Israelite people that will represent God into the nations. And so what does he ask for? Wisdom. We hear, God said to him in 1 Kings 3, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life, or riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I will now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has ever been before, and none like you shall arise after you. It's this beautiful ray of hope we see in this king. As the king, David, whose heart is that of the father, fails. As we see the king, David, and his children wander. 
As we see the King David who looked so promising, who could take on the giants, yet he could not control his own lusts. So we get this glimmer of hope. Perhaps at last we have the man. This one is going to be wise. Not with simply a heart like God. Oh, but a mind like him. So the sun falls. Solomon was given more than just wisdom. He was given the entire earth at his fingertips. And as the fool that he was proved to be, he clutched at it for the entirety of his life. We read in 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8, of some of the glory and foolishness of this man. Verse 3 says, He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And that's not the most audacious part. And his wives turned away his heart. This Solomon king was a man who had failed his people. This Solomon king was a man who after all of his life had walked with the wisdom of the Lord with all of the treasures and wealth and pleasures of this earth and he looks back and says it was empty. Solomon excelled all other kings but still failed to the point to the perfect king. He was the man in whom hope should not dwell. And he learned this the hard way. But he stands before his people and he doesn't want the same fate for them. So he preaches. What is his life equated to? What is his thesis statement? What is the point that all must understand that as he perishes, what is the key factor of life that he wants them to understand? He says, all is vanity. We use different words, do we not? I don't know about you, but I'm not walking around elegant stores saying, pah. It's tosh, it's vanity, rubbish. Okay, so we might need to understand what is being used here in this word vanity. What does it mean to be vain? Well, it's actually a very difficult word to interpret. And the reason is because it's very general. Its literal translation is vapor. Vapor. What does he intend by this word vapor? Well, it's going to be interpreted by context. Some of us might look at Ecclesiastes and say, wait a second, he's saying things that God says are good are in fact vapor. What is he meaning here? Does he mean to say that all of life is simply meaningless? Should we just kind of cash it in? Is there literally no meaning in life? Or is he saying something very, very different and far more terrifying? He says, vapor of vapors. 
This is the vaporiest vapor that has ever existed. Not the steaming from a hot boiling pot that emits such steam it could burn your face. No, this is the vapor of a cool December morning when you exhale and as the moment you perceive your breath, it dissipates. All is vapor. What are some of the things that he's pointing to in this word? He is saying that things are indeed fleeting. He speaks as James 4.14 does. That we are but transitive in nature. We are here but for a moment and gone the next. Parents see this in their children. As they sneeze and their children grow 10 inches. As they look at their hands and suddenly they are not the same hands that used to hold one another. As they look, life day by day passing, and they look at the days wondering, how is the sun spinning quicker and the clocks tick slower? He speaks of life in the very manner that those who sit on the edge of retirement look back and say, where did the days go? Oh, life, he says. It's a vapor. He doesn't mean simply that it's fleeting. No, 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 that would be far too easy. He means far more than that. He speaks also of the futility found in life. Futile, meaning filled with frustration, anger, sorrow. This focuses on the cursed aspect of the world. Futile. I wake up so that I can eat some breakfast. I rise, I eat, and I work that I might pay, that I might sleep, that I might rise, that I might eat, that I might work, that I might sleep, that I might rise, that I might eat, that I might work, that I might die. Futile. He says there is a hostile environment that we God's people are introduced into. We live in a world that is built on blocks. That despite the push and push and push and drive for advancement, how do we have the same beating human heart that existed in Genesis 3? There's a futility to this world. He speaks also often throughout this book as things being vapor, meaning they are incomprehensible. They're not understandable. It's as if there is a mirage, something that from a far distance I can indeed perceive, but there's nothing that I can actually know to be true of it. He looks at this world and all of its massive questions and he says, what is the point? It's a vapor. To seek after it would be futile. The troubles of life are incomprehensible. Not able to be understood. And you say, Dalen, you're depressing. No, I'm not. Solomon is. And if you're a little bit low, that means you're headed in the right direction. Because this is indeed his very purpose. 
vanity of vapors. Pardon, vapor of vapors. Vanity to its fullest extreme. This is the epitome and absolute utter vapor. Charles Bridges says this, All things in life are therefore utterly inefficient. When he says vapor of vapors, here is what he says. They are inefficient for the great end of man's true happiness. He's saying, I did not achieve the happiness I pursued. I ran at it with all of me and all of my resources, all of my wisdom and everything I had at my fingertips. And I found it didn't exist. Charles Bridges continues, It only enlarges his desires in the endeavor to gratify them. But it leaves behind an aching void, a blank that cannot be filled up. In essence, what Solomon seeks to do is proclaim to his people, my life did not do what I set out for. So you must learn from my life. You must not pursue what I have pursued. If you do, I promise what you will receive. The more we desire and obtain, the more that we will long for more. Swallow all of the dust that you desire. It will only leave your hunger aching ever more severely. He looks at his life and he says, It is Vapor. So some of us would like to pick up a rock. Hold on, Solomon. Where is your wisdom? Do you not know that there is a God who created that vapor? Do you not know that God actually created the dust that has created all mankind? Do you not know that there is a God that gives intrinsic meaning to all that is before us? To which we must read on before we throw too many rocks in his direction. He says this, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He asks a question. This is his leading question. This is the question that has gotten the result that he has found in verse 2. This is the question that a young Solomon set out to answer as he took over his father's kingdom. That he spent his life pursuing understanding for. He asked, what is the point? What's the point of life? Not simply is there life after death. He assumes that to be true. He wants to know, is there life before death? Is there anything worthy of toil? What does man gain? What is worthwhile in this world? But he does not simply say, in this world. He uses a very key term that will help us to understand why it is that Solomon can say what he says and not be committing blasphemy. Under the sun. To get the right answer, you must first have the right question. And until you ask the right question, no matter what the answer is or how true it may be, it will always 
sounds like folly. And so Solomon gives us the question to ask. What is worth while under the sun? With this, I turn to others and their wise words to proclaim, in essence, this means life without God. Let's assume for a moment, says Solomon, that all of this world and everything you perceive, O Israel, is all that there is. He looks about at his kingdom that he has created. He looks about the gardens, the glories, the fact that silver was so uh, plentiful that it was as worthless as stone. He looks at all that this world has before his people and he says, look at my kingdom that I designed. If this is all there is, what's the point? Let's assume for a moment that there is no God, he says. He assumes that if we take the perspective from birth to death of mankind, that he can convince us that, as Hemingway put it, life is a dirty trick, a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. He speaks to those who view the world in such a limited sense that the bounds of this world are all that they consider void of the existence of God. He meets those who would perceive this world as its only existence and hope. He meets them on their ground and seeks to convict them of the world's inherent vanity. Suddenly the heart of those who follow Christ changes at this moment. You see, he does not look at the world as God has designed it to be. He does not look at the world as God has redeemed it to be. He does not look at the world as God promises one day it shall be. He looks at the world and says, if this is all you get, what's the point? Because I'll show you what you do get. Vapor. It's a mirage that is meant to drive you from turning and running to a well further into the desert that seeks to claim your life. In essence, he seeks to show that these gifts of the world around us turn into chains of agony when man seeks to find their meaning and happiness ultimately in them. The American dream, the dream house, the dream job, Would you like to know why we call them dreams? Because they are but a dream. They do not exist, nor will they truly satisfy, if our meaning and hope is found in them. He speaks to the people of his kingdom. And he says, look around you. If this is all we have, if we live as if this world is all that there is, this world will destroy us. This becomes true a few short years later after his death. When the great God-fearing kingdom that he had built with his life divides and the people of God are plunged headlong into the same vanity as their king, Solomon. We know for a fact that the people of God did not heed his warning. They heard it and decided, 
nah. I think there's some meaning out there. I'm going to go find it. And they wander to the same mirage that took Solomon's life. He speaks as one who gives warning. He speaks as one pleading for us to not be like him. He has tasted the decorated dust of all that the world promises, and he pleads that we would be wiser than he. That we would see if all this world is weighed and considered, we will only find that there must be more. Depressing, isn't it? If I am to live for my family, I will seek life-giving water from boiling steam. It will not satisfy my thirst nor quench my desire. It will leave me burned and thirstier than before. This life without God is vapor. So how are we to understand this book? How, how can we even include it in the canon without understanding how to read it? Some have even rejected its ability to be in our Bibles. Because they say, oh, what a fool who looks at the world God created and sees nothing but vapor. They didn't read it twice. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole of man. What's our interpretive key? This life lived for itself will be a mouthful of dust and ash. It'll promise satisfaction and it'll destroy you as you swallow it. Because there is a God and life under the sun is not the end of life. There is a God indeed that dwells above the sun. The one who hung it in the sky. The one who holds it on its axis. And the one who intends to use this dust-filled world to call those thirsty back to the springs of life. He says, when everything is heard, when everything's understood, when I sought all of life out, when I sought all of pleasure, all of wisdom, all of my kingdom, when I've built up the very garden of Eden, what must I know? I stand before God. And He will call all to account. It is He that gives meaning to all of this dust.
here he makes very clear that there is a God that I am intrinsically before. I have a relationship with him should I kick and scream. Should I beg that he not exist? As many philosophers have sought all that they could do but to prove the beauty and meaning in life as long as there's no God. And what's amazing is that as you read their books, what they say is vanity. There's no point. Well, my friends, because they operate by the very worldview that Solomon seeks to destroy. There is a God. Because I do not live in an empty and meaningless world, rather I live in a world before a holy God who sees and knows all. And He designed this world to point me to my one true need that gives meaning to all and everything in this existence. The Creator of all. Thus, all of my life, every inch and iota, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, every minute detail, every single interaction with another image bearer of God, the moment I pull up to Starbucks, that human being is not in this world to give me coffee. They have a maker that they are imaged after. They have a soul that is meant to give glory to the king that will do so in one way or another. It gives meaning to every single thing I do, think, say, believe. And it is that in that moment, in these iota moments, I can give glory and delight to a loving Father who means to bring me out of the mirage and into the everlasting oasis of life with Him. This life is not the one we were built for. There's a question, I pray you remember, that Solomon asks at the beginning of this book. And it's strikingly similar to a question that will be asked in a short while by another preacher. One who seeks not to simply gather Israel to proclaim to it, but seeks as a mother hen to gather her brood into her breast. This preacher asks the question in Mark chapter 8, verses 35 through 36. This preacher says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Where Solomon says, All right, let's pretend there's no God. What do you get out of life? Christ, the true gatherer, the assembler of God's people, the one who in fact would initiate and create the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people, the church. He doesn't simply say, if there's no God, what do we get out of life? He says, what if I give you literally everything in life? It can't equate to your eternal soul. It will only be dust. It is but a vapor. 
Solomon comes to us as a man who's seen it all. All of life and everything that it has to offer. He has chased after that mirage of life in ways that would make many of us blush and more of us envy. As he concludes this, he says, all is vapor. That is his conclusion. So, what is then at the very end of the book, the final answer to this problem of there is no meaning in life if there is no life before God? How does he conclude? He says, we must fear God and keep His commandments. For it is the whole of man. Our very essence was built for this purpose, to dwell in the glory and love of our Father. We must live utterly and entirely for the God of living water. All else is but steam that emits from His radiant glory. Would you heed the warning of our foolish brother, Solomon, whose wisdom is unmatched by any other. We can spend our entire existence searching for the meaning of life. If we look only to what is in this life for meaning and purpose and joy, then we're going to come to the same conclusion as Solomon, or far worse. Settle our hearts with a world of mist, not realizing there is substance in Christ. If I live for my kids, then oh, the bitter sorrows that await my soul. Many have tried. All will fall. If I live for money, oh, what a worrisome and fretful many a nights that lie ahead of me. As the more I obtain, the more fear I have of losing it. If I live for beauty, oh, what a wearisome treadmill to plod on. Back surgery at 20-something. Beauty is fleeting. That's generous. If I live for laughter, oh, the pain of a heart that will one day be exposed to the world of sorrows we live in. You can giggle through life but the world is weeping. If I live for my happiness, oh, what a bitter pill, for that is a bathtub ever draining that no mist will ever be able to fill. Why would God send us this man? I just kind of want to be left alone and enjoy the mist a while. I know I can't give my life to it, but it seems so good and nice. I know that I can't live for this world alone, but can't I enjoy it but for a moment? I know that these are good gifts of God, but they kind of seem like God themselves at times. And I don't know of you, but my heart is drawn to be like Gomer in Hosea 2, who gives thanks to her lusts for the presents given by her husband. My heart is tempted to see 
all meaning in this world. To which Christ speaks to in Matthew chapter 6. And he promises where the treasures of this world will be. In the mouth of the moth. In the decay of the rust. In the account of the thief. He says instead. Lay up treasure. Where? Beyond the sun. In heaven. Where no moth. No rust. No thief might tarry. Because they do not belong in God's unending satisfaction. God sends us the Sermon of Solomon to point us to the true oasis in the desert. We long after lusts. We long after homes. We long after comfort. We long after entertainment. And they are but mirages that promise satisfaction. Yet you lift yourself from the couch after hours of laying there. And what are you? Weary. Our eyes stay ever open, appealing and bringing in all of the beauty of the world. And yet, when I rise the next morning, I need to open them again. Because the sights of glory and beauty from the day before didn't fully satisfy. God sends us the Sermon of Solomon to point us to the true oasis in the desert. Joy in the broken agony of life. He gives us meaning in the dying and weary world. He seeks to free us from our death grip on death and draw our arms out to Him who offers us true life and lasting pleasures innumerable as we see in Psalm 1611. He breaks through the mirage of this world, shows it for the empty canteen that it is, and points us to the crystal clear springs of living water found in Christ and Christ alone. As the woman at the well, he says, oh, draw a drink. Knowing all the while, doesn't matter how much she draws, She'll be back for more later. So what does he say? I will give you water that is living, that will satisfy your soul. If there is no God, or I do not live my life utterly revolving around him, I will never truly find the rest and contentment that my soul is built to long for. I'll go to school so I can get to the, into the school, so that I can graduate the school, so that I can get a job, so that I have to go to my job that I don't like anymore, but I'll get another job, but I won't like that one either. And so I'll get another job, a better paying job, and all the money that starts to come in, and so I'll buy the toys and the toys will break. So I'll seek to find this relationship in which I find hope, but that relationship will not call me God. Rather, it's one more person I'm yoked to that will only ever drag me from my joy and happiness. So we produce littler people who do that even more. 
So I pour all my attention and my love in them, trying to give them a good life, trying to build up all that I could to give them the best shot and opportunity they possibly can. And guess what? They throw it out. Or what's better, they throw it in your face. Because they are living for the vapor you are as well. They are living in this world of vapor. And when we live for our joy and happiness in this world, it will abate quickly. The right answer will not seem like the right answer until we have the right question. Your happiness is bound not in this world. Your joy and lasting pleasure, your unwavering contentment, your delight of soul cannot be found here, though chocolate is tasty. Chocolate is tasty because there is a God who gives good gifts. Marriage is heavenly because there is a heavenly God awaiting His bride. Water is sweet and satisfying to remind you that dust is not. That you might long for the heavenly springs of satisfaction that are not found in this world. Fear God and keep His commandments for this is the whole of man. Answers the question, what does man get for all of his toil here under the sun? Oh, but the reward is not under the sun. In fact, we have utter meaning of life. Because that which I see before me is not all that matters. All that matters is what makes that which is before me so meaningful. There is a God, and I have a guaranteed relationship with Him. Thus, all of life is saturated with meaning. I will either live with fear of Him or no fear of Him but I intrinsically relate to God. And one day, there will be another one who gathers, who assembles all people before Him, and He will reign His kingdom. But before you turn your heart, think on the fact that there was a preacher who came. There was a preacher who came after Adam and Eve had reached for the dust and tried to find hope. And he did not come with thunders and strokes of death. He came in the cool of the day in the garden designed for their pleasure. And he promised there was another that there would be one that would not be like, oh foolish Solomon, 
with all of his wisdom, there would be one that would destroy the serpent forever. This God that sent this Son has built this life to lead me down empty path after empty path after empty path after empty path that I might finally realize I'm running in the wrong maze. That there is one who is able to satisfy my soul. Not the food that lies before me. Not intimacy. Not sexuality. Not education. Not finances. Not security. Not peaceful sounds. If my hope is in this world, I need to turn. Because there's one who calls out to you and says, do not go that way. I've already been. Turn instead to the one who gave the gift in the first place. This God built the world to make you realize there is only one that is able to satisfy my soul. That he might be my portion is my utmost and highest calling. And so, what begins? Vanity of vanities becomes joy everlasting. For my hope is put in heavenly treasures where no moth, no rust, no thief might tarry. Only joy everlasting in the God who created me to be ever in his satisfying presence. Youth, don't run after the world. It's been done. It's getting old. You're not going to find something they haven't. Elderly, don't look back at this life wondering what you can hang your hat on. If you're found in Christ, you have not yet reached life. Those who are weary, suffering in this world, this life is not your inheritance. You wait for a truer kingdom. Might our hearts run in fear to the Lord out of joy for his gracious gift in Christ and all other gifts that he gives that turn from vapor into living water. Let's pray. Father God, you are the king of all creation. You are the one that dwells in unchanging glory. And Lord, you made man from dust. Forgive us for believing that dust is worth your glory. 
Lord, might you break through the mirage of those in this room that still do not live for you. Though they might know the words, Lord, that they might know the truths, their hearts do not dwell in peace with you. Lord, might you show them the emptiness of this world compared to the overflowing riches of being in Christ. Lord, might you keep those of us from wandering further to the mirage that claims as the siren song our lives. Turn back those who wander from you, Lord. Might you work in their hearts to heed this warning of our brother Solomon. And Lord, I thank you that a man who looks back at his life and says it was all meaningless is able to be brought to repentance to find utter hope and utter meaning as he transitions from this world into true life. Lord, might you call those who do not follow you And Lord, might you call those who follow after you to follow farther. We pray these things thankful for your good gifts that you've filled this world with and thankful for the fact that you have given those in Christ Jesus the exclusive right to truly enjoy them. We pray these things as well as for a blessing on our continued gathered worship here today. In Jesus' name, amen.